Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 124, Victory Beyond the Battlefield. Last time, when Nazi Germany attacked communist Russia, an uneasy alliance was forged between Russia and the United Kingdom, the latter still holding out against the fascists. Then, after Pearl Harbor, the United States openly joined the Allies. As for the Poles, recently invaded themselves by the Soviets, the two were now allies, fighting in the East. But right away it was discovered by the Poles that some 15,000 of their men were missing. Some 8,000 were officers, some 6,000 former police officers, the rest being soldiers or of the Polish intelligentsia. Stalin denied any knowledge and got on with the defense of Western Russia, but the Poles understandably, could not let this go. Then in April of 1943, Nazi Germany told the world that a mass grave of over 10,000 Poles had been found, about 20 miles west of Smolensk. Several investigations were launched, including one of an international committee made up of several European countries. The evidence pointed towards both the Germans and the Russians. By April of 43, it seemed to Stalin that Russia may indeed survive the German onslaught, and with this in mind, he used the Polish investigation into the mass murder to cause a rift between Moscow and the Polish government in exile stationed in London. For in the back of the dictator's mind, he could see a day when Soviet troops would be in control of Poland, and if their government never came back, well, a new one, a pro-Soviet one, could be put in its place. So Moscow cut ties with the Poles, and Stalin allowed many of them to depart for the Middle East. London and Washington were perturbed, but nothing they could say would appease Stalin. As the war continued to favor the Soviets, the rift widened. Even Churchill's silencing of the Polish press in London would not turn the Russian leader back to working with the Poles' leaders. To be sure, such thoughts must have circulated in Stalin's head even earlier. Just weeks before Berlin made the announcement about finding the mass grave in April of 43, Polish communists created the Union of Polish Patriots. This entity could not have come about or survived very long in Russia without Stalin's blessing. One of its leaders was Wanda Wasiluska of Soviet Russia, not Poland, but of Polish descent. The organization claimed to hold most dear the true will of the Polish people. She was a colonel in the Soviet army. Right away, the Union, probably directed by Stalin, sought to throw doubt on the legitimacy of the Polish government in exile. After all, the people of Poland were suffering under German occupation, their only hope were the Russian forces to their east, and many Poles were fighting for the Allied cause in several theaters. What was the government in exile doing, far removed from the struggle? But now, with the rift, mostly of Stalin's making, the Union had its cause. Meanwhile, Churchill, though probably not fully aware of Stalin's deeper game, fought back more out of enmity for communism than anything else. On April 30, 1943, just days after Stalin broke relations with the Poles, 
he sent a communique to Moscow that read in part, We should not, of course, be able to recognize such a government and would continue our relations with Szygorski, the current Polish leader, who is far the most helpful man you or we are likely to find for the purposes of the common cause. I expect that this will also be the American view. And right there, Stalin must have known he was now in a much larger fight. But Churchill wasn't the only one who sensed that something larger had just been launched. U.S. Ambassador to Soviet Russia, William Stanley, only in the position for a year, though a naval officer and who had been in Russia, working on that end of the Lendley's program, summed up his reaction in a letter to Washington. We may, it seems to me, be faced with a reversal in European history. To protect itself from the influences of Bolshevism, Western Europe in 1918 attempted to set up a cordon sanitaire. The Kremlin, in order to protect itself from the influences of the West, may now envisage the formation of a belt of pro-Soviet states. Was it possible that Stalin was already looking beyond the current war and thinking that a line of pro-Soviet countries in Eastern Europe would be Russia's best bet from being invaded a third time by Germany? And if this was the case, then Poland had to be the linchpin that would hold the structure together. However, if this was Stalin's goal, he had two major issues to overcome in regards to Poland his linchpin. For one, the joint German-Soviet invasion, attack, and occupation of Poland was still fresh in every Pole's mind. That, combined with the very real chance that the Soviets had massacred the over 10,000 of their men during the occupation, would seem to lead to the logical conclusion that any pro-Soviet entity in Poland would not find much support. Indeed, only hatred. Yet, if Stalin was planning something, of which his rift was only the first move, and the creation of the Union was his second, his chess game still had a ways to go before it was played out. But on his side were two powerful pieces. Time, and the common threat that was still very much in play, Hitler. And this is where Churchill's thinking and priorities were the defeat of Nazi Germany. For it was just a few years ago that Berlin and Moscow had made a pact that benefited both of them, at the risk of their neighbors. It wasn't beyond the realm of possibility, now that Hitler's primary thrust had failed, and the Soviet Union was so weakened that Japan may seek to break their non-aggression pact, that another agreement could not be reached. This was borne out when Churchill met with the Soviet ambassador, Maisky. As the Prime Minister explained, his overriding and single concern was to beat the Nazis. This is no time for quarrels and charges. British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden matched this single-mindedness by telling Parliament that the soured relations between the Poles and the Soviets was simply the work of Berlin. He summed up his views with, least said, soonest mended, which looks good for a newspaper heading, but does not alleviate the pain and loss felt by the Poles. And for the ruling party in London, there was one more element to this, 
proving the adage, all politics is local. The government worried about open clashes between the 55,000 communists and 100,000 Poles currently in the country. And yet the tension did not die down, for the newspapers of both sides would not let it. The Soviet-controlled papers continued with their opinions and stories of the Poles, who could not be trusted, and the Polish papers in London backed the government in exile and did not hesitate to sling their own accusations. And yet, over all of this, Stalin calmly told FDR that the Soviet Union would always treat their Polish neighbors with respect, meaning the people, but not their treacherous government. But whereas the British, in the form of Churchill, attempted to silence the Poles within his country, President Roosevelt had a much more prickly conundrum. With some six million Polish Americans, the State Department could not find a way to calm their worst fears of the massacre. What's more, the State Department did not feel comfortable flatly stating that their Russian allies did not have a hand in this nightmare. The evidence pointed towards the Germans and the Russians, with nothing being conclusive. So the official announcements were vague and reassuring that the truth would come out in time, which meant a full-throated defense of Stalin could not be released, while his country was currently taking the brunt of Hitler's aggressions. It didn't help that the Soviets didn't even bother to offer up anything as evidence beyond a statement that read, the fascists did it. Hence, the best the American Office of War Information could do was claim that the Germans' version of events was rather fishy. This was backed up by two unofficial positions of the United States that claimed, one, the Germans were trying to distract from their number of losses on various battlefields, and two, to focus on the German crimes against the Poles and other occupied countries. Governmental sleight of hand, as it were. What success Washington had with this less-than-straight line had more to do with the people's current mood of thinking, or rather, where they were emotionally. Pearl Harbor had brought the country together, and Barbarossa led them to believe that Russia was in the same boat. Hence, they were allies. Life magazine had, just before the catching discovery, put out a full, very positive issue all about the Soviet Union. The communists were their allies, that Stalin's sole purpose was to defeat Hitler, that Lenin, who had established the Soviet Republic, was perhaps the greatest man of modern times that Stalin's NKVD was much like their own FBI. World War had turned everyone's preconceived notions upside down, but the only thing that mattered now was victory. As for the man in charge in Washington, FDR, his true beliefs of Katyn were impossible to read. For one, he never really told anyone most of what he was thinking. And second, as horrible as the massacre was, he had other, to him, larger priorities. So, as confusion reigned over what had happened at Katyn and who was responsible, the president sent a message to Stalin that, 
he would like to meet with the Soviet leader somewhere near the Bering Straits, alone, without Churchill. As for what was to be discussed, that is unknown. Was it Soviet support for the still-forming United Nations? Was it help in fighting Japan, as the war in Europe seemed to have turned the tide? Was it Katyn? But the meeting never happened, hence who knows what would have transpired. But either way, those men were dead, and there was a war to win. Another could have been moment in World War II history was when Stalin, having what he wanted, a breakdown in Soviet-Polish relations, and now his own Union of Patriots, made up of Poles, reached out to the new Polish leader in exile, Stanislaw Makowajczyk, after Sikorsky died. Moscow, the now dominant power in the war, was willing once again to form a political union with the Poles for a price. Members of the Union of Patriots were to be included in the Polish government in exile, and some current members who Moscow felt were antagonistic towards it were to be pushed out. Also that Poland was to give way to certain Soviet claims of territory of eastern Poland. And third, that the Polish government was to publicly chide their own decision when they called for a Red Cross investigation into Katyn. As can be imagined, the Poles turned this down flat. But it's equally possible, probably more so, that Stalin wanted to maintain the riff, but now he could blame the Poles for their current differences. As 1943 moved into the fall, London and Washington talked less and less of Katyn. To be sure, the Poles continued with their diatribe in the press, but being a minor player, the overall ruckus about the massacre faded into the background. It wasn't exactly what Berlin wanted, but clearly there was tension between the various allies. Something tangible may yet come of it. In late October of 43, in preparation for the Big Three to meet in Tehran later that year, the respective foreign ministers met in Moscow, Cordell Hull, Molotov, and Anthony Eden. The result was a special declaration signed by the various leaders. One part read, Thus the Germans, who took part in shooting Italian officers, will be brought back to the scene of their crimes and judged on the spot. Or rather, that's how the Soviet and American versions read, when theirs was released to the press on November 1st. However, London's version came out a day later, and instead of mentioning the Italian officers, it read, the Polish officers. London blamed this on a mutilation in translation that should have read, Italian officers. But the Katyn massacre was once again front-page news. As for the Soviets, Stalin's feathers were barely ruffled as his troops were fighting and winning against the Germans. Indeed, by this point, the leading Soviet troops had just approached the Katyn forest area. Now it was Moscow's turn to launch a special investigation, and no, specialists from other countries would not be invited to participate, not even from Poland. Being a master manipulator himself, when propaganda minister Goebbels 
heard that the German forces were being pushed out of Katyn. He knew it was only a matter of time before the Soviets discovered that the Germans had perpetrated the killings. And he was right. The Soviet Commission's very name, the Special Commission for Ascertaining and Investigating these Circumstances of the Shooting of Polish Officer Prisoners by the German Fascist Invaders in the Katyn Forest, indicated their view. And right away, the Soviet Commission began not only proving the Germans were the murderers, but also started discrediting the findings of the previous German, international, and Polish commissions. It stated that just before the Germans came to this area, the Polish POWs, yes, officers and men, were being used by the Soviets to build roads, to better help the Soviet defenders deploy their troops. But then the Germans did come, and in such speed that it was not possible for the local Soviet authorities to remove the prisoners. Hence, they were captured by the Germans. And in the former NKVD house, the German 537th Engineering Battalion then made its headquarters. This was certainly plausible, but not the next part. The Soviets declared that the Polish officers and men were killed in the fall of 41, a few months after Barbarossa was launched. Keep in mind that the three previous committees said the men were massacred in early spring of 1940. Then a barrage of witness testimonies were added to the Soviet findings that local women hired to clean and care for the German engineers had seen German soldiers come back from the nearby woods with blood on their sleeves, that they witnessed groups of Polish prisoners being led out into the woods, never to return, and in between the going out and coming back, shots could be heard. But if more direct evidence was needed, the mayor of Smolensk, Menchgain's journal, was found. He had been appointed by the Germans when they were in control, and the notebook contained an entry stating that the Germans were killing the Poles. Menchgain had ran to the Germans when the Soviets reconquered the area, fearing revenge. He was eventually found in Western Europe by the Soviets and taken to Russia. Hence, his version of the story was never examined by any non-Soviets. The overall Soviet report was given context by stating, in the winter of 1942-43, with the Allies getting the upper hand, the Germans used their massacre of early 1940 to discredit the Soviets and hopefully drive a wedge between the Allies. They had the bodies manipulated to make it look as if the Soviets had carried this out. As for the forensics, the Soviet report matched those of the other three, as the evidence was obvious. But the most important part of the report, and where it deviated from the others, was the time of death. The Soviet experts claimed the men were shot somewhere between September and December of 1941. As the Soviets were investigating the site, several foreign reporters were brought in. This group included the third secretary of the U.S. Embassy to Soviet Russia and the ambassador's 25-year-old daughter, Kathleen Harriman. Miss Harriman was a bold adventurer who lived well beyond the norms of women for the time, but not because of her family's money, 
but from her personality alone. She did not hesitate to see the gruesome camp. Miss Harriman, the American diplomat, and several foreign press watched as autopsies were carried out. But the more questions that were asked of the Soviets, the more terse became their responses. It wasn't long before the non-Russians were escorted away. Ambassador Harriman debriefed his daughter and his third secretary, and their overall report was that, though the evidence was inconclusive, it was likely the Germans were the ones who killed the Poles. This was sent to the State Department. The Soviets, not for the first or last time, got what they wanted. Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 125, A Swing and a Miss. Last time, as the Soviets had pushed back enough to the west to retake Sevastopol and the Katyn Forest, they conducted their own investigation. Foreign press were permitted to come, as was the ambassador's daughter and assistant, who were not allowed to participate, were foreign professionals. Miss Harriman told her father that based on what the Soviets had turned up, it was most likely that the Germans had mass-murdered the Poles, yet she wasn't convinced beyond all doubt. The strongest evidence the Soviets produced in their report was paperwork found on some of the 200 bodies already searched by the three previous committees, but hadn't undergone autopsies. The Russians stated that they found letters and such dated from November 12, 1940, to June 20, 1941, which clearly demonstrated the prisoners had been alive past the point in time that the Soviets had held the area. Hence, it had to be the Germans who killed those men. The report ended, The conclusions drawn from the evidence given by witnesses and from the findings of the medical legal experts on the shooting of Polish war prisoners by the Germans in the autumn of 1941, are completely confirmed by the material evidence and documents excavated from the Katyn graves. Interestingly, the Soviet report failed to mention the trees planted over the bodies or the four-corner bayonet penetrations on the bodies. It seemed the report focused solely on clearing their comrades. However, to lend credence to their findings, the Soviets clearly stated that the killings had been carried out by the German 537 Engineer Battalion, who were previously stationed nearby. The Soviet report even named the officers in charge of the battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Arns, First Lieutenant Resk, and Second Lieutenant Hot. Unfortunately for the Soviets, Lieutenant Colonel Arns survived the dreaded Eastern Front and appeared at the Nuremberg trial of German war criminals. The first question everyone asked was, why would a man in charge of such a heinous crime, surely to be hanged if ever found, allow himself to be captured and was willing to testify? The massacre at Castian Forest would be reopened. As the fortunes of war had turned against the Germans, 
Plans were made in Berlin to gather the belongings of the Polish massacred. Letters, diaries, photographs, and identification cards. To safeguard them and to make sure they never fell into Russian hands. The post-war world was going to be hard enough for the Germans. If, in this one instance, they could prove their innocence, then no measure was too great. By the time the massive amount of documents were brought together, there were enough to fill nine wooden crates. First things first, they had to be moved a bit to the west to give the Poles chosen, people who were specialists in forensic medicine and criminology, time to go over the documents. However, word of this got out, so the Soviets and the Polish underground made their own plans to steal the crates. Under heavy guard, the crates and the specialists made their way to the Polish city of Krakow, about 150 miles or 241 kilometers southwest of Warsaw, and placed in the Polish Institute of Forensic Medicine. Right away, the Polish staff, under the direction of Secretary General of the Polish Red Cross, Dr. Robel, began examining the papers. As the Polish underground's resources were impressive throughout the war, they too were soon going over the evidence. The various paperwork's dates stopped in either April or May of 1940. Indeed, some entries were written as if the author knew they were going to die in the next few hours. The Germans and Poles knew that the Soviets would stop at nothing until the evidence was in their hands or destroyed. This worried the Polish underground as well. So, they decided to steal all of it from the Germans. Helping them was the very man in charge of verification, the Secretary of General of the Polish Red Cross. His plan was to build nine identical wooden boxes, but to make them airtight, to transfer the contents to his boxes and then sink them into the bottom of a lake until the war was over. However, this enterprise was discovered while halfway done. The German police were called in, but before any reprisals could be dealt out, they had to consider a larger threat. Soviet forces were, at the moment, enveloping Krakow in a pincer movement. The security of the files had to come first. So the ranking police officer ordered Dr. Beck, the German director of the Institute of Forensic Medicine and Scientific Criminology, to destroy everything. However, uncharacteristically, Beck ignored his orders and decided instead to pack everything up and take it west, personally, to Germany. The boxes were, again, sealed up and loaded onto two trucks. Dr. Beck and company left for the west, However, a few days later, Beck was back in Krakow, without the trucks. The man had broken his leg and returned for proper treatment. When the underground heard of Beck's return, they sent someone to question him. Eventually, the doctor told his interrogator that the trucks were in Breslau, modern-day Wrocław, some 125 miles or 210 kilometers northwest of Krakow. Beck recovered enough and made his own way back to the crates. Soon after his departure, Soviet troops took Krakow, 
and right away representatives from the Lublin government, which had started out as the Union of Polish Patriots in Moscow, were demanding the documents. Dr. Robel, who had verified the papers, was taken away by security troops of the Polish communist government. But that was as close as the communists got this time. Next, the Soviets captured the city of Breslau. Soon after, Soviet security police were asking around for any information about the papers, the trucks, the boxes, anything. But right behind them was a member of the Polish underground, undercover as a Polish Red Cross member. This individual was able to ascertain that the boxes had been stored in the city's university. But as the Soviet armies had approached, an SS unit came back, took the crates, and headed further west. Dr. Beck stayed with the boxes. The Soviets, not to mention the Polish underground, had just missed the crates, again, by mere days. Not until a U.S. congressional investigation in 1952 could the story of Dr. Beck and the papers about the dead Poles be known. Dr. Beck and the papers, now crammed into one truck, continued their way west. Avoiding Soviet bombers and advanced units, he reached Dresden and used the authority of the SS to acquire a new truck. But as the war was winding down, he got no further than Rendabau, about 85 miles or 136 kilometers south of Berlin. Dr. Beck's hopes and his orders were to see that the documents made their way into the hands of the Allies, or were to be destroyed. Under no circumstances were they to be captured by the Soviets, who, it seemed, were only days, sometimes hours, behind the doctor. So, hoping to throw the Soviets off his trail, Beck hid the boxes in the railway station at Redebel, and himself headed south to Prague. There he hoped to meet up with British or American forces, or the International Red Cross. But before leaving, Beck told the station's dispatcher to watch over the crates and to burn them completely if it seemed the Soviets were going to reach the city first. Just shy of Prague, Beck came into contact with American forces and told the local commander what he was hiding. But at the same time, Beck and the American learned that Dresden and Radebell had fallen into Soviet hands. Beck's mission to save the papers of the massacred Poles had come to an end. As for the papers, the man at the rail station was as good as his word. Just as soon as Soviet forces reached the outskirts of the city, all of the crates were set ablaze. But even in the midst of capturing yet another city, this fire stood out, and soon the railman and his family were arrested by Soviet secret police. Dr. Beck's mother was also arrested, and though the secret police kept her locked up for more than six months, she did not divulge Beck's whereabouts in Western Germany. The love of a mother. Now that the war in Europe was over, the victors, along with the French, met to organize the trying of various Nazis for war crimes. The way it evolved, the Americans were responsible for prosecuting for the war of aggression. Great Britain's responsibility was crimes committed on the high seas and treaty violations, while the Soviet Union and France would share the burden of crimes against humanity. Russia would handle the East, 
France, the West. Of the many unanswered questions concerning the whole affair, one of the most senior has to be during the meeting that produced the agreement and the charter of the International Military Tribunal, which would become known as the Nuremberg Trials, did the Soviets angle for themselves the responsibility they were given, namely the trying of crimes against humanity, in the East. If so, then they succeeded marvelously. If not, they were very, very lucky. And Stalin was not known for leaving things to luck. Much like the Allies were powerless to do much during the war to help the persecuted Jews, the Americans, British, and French watched in horrid fascination to see if the Soviets, who they all knew might have committed the massacre near Smolensk themselves, bring up those very charges against the Germans. Yet if one takes into consideration the psychology of Stalin, even with just what was known about him then, the answer should have been obvious. As the Soviet prosecutor went through his list of charges, the massacre of Katyn was among them. Incredulous, the British and American representatives stood and protested this item. But then the chief American prosecutor stated that, if the Soviet prosecutors thought they could prove the charge, they were entitled to do so under the division of the case. This was all the Soviet prosecutors needed. No matter if they could not prove the Germans guilty or not, Stalin was now allowed to go forward to put his version of the truth before the world. On October 18, 1945, the Soviets listed their announcements of murder and ill-treatment of prisoners of war and of members of the armed forces of the countries with whom Germany was at war. This included the charge, in September 1941, Polish officers who were POWs were killed in the Katyn forest near Smolensk. The world was about to find out if the Soviets were as good at being lawyers as they were fighters. But the real question should have been, were the Soviets as good at manipulating people and events as they were soldiers? The answer, as most were about to find out, was even better. The various trials got underway, and not until February 8, 1946, did the chief Soviet prosecutor, General Rudenko, charge certain Germans with the invasion of Poland and their subsequent policies of extermination. As soon as this sentence was translated for the major Germans present into their earpieces, Gehring and Hess choked with laughter and removed their headphones. Gehring was asked why did he not listen to this very serious charge. He sardonically replied, I did not think they, the Russians, would be so shameless as to mention Poland. Dr. Gilbert of the U.S. Army followed this up by asking, why was it so shameless? Gehring, without missing a beat, replied, because they attacked at the same time we did. It must be remembered that the details of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, certainly its more secret clauses, was not yet known to the wider world. Indeed, the German attack on Poland would not have taken place had Stalin not made the pact, for Hitler was not keen on invading Poland and possibly creating a larger storm in the East, one that Germany was not yet ready for. Had not Moscow 
agreed to it. One other German who was present, but not involved in Poland, but knew of the secret accord between Germany and Soviet Russia, exclaimed, When they mentioned Poland, I thought I'd die. He meant die laughing. Still, Soviet Colonel Pokrovsky, Deputy Chief Prosecutor, had made his accusation, and his evidence would be plain and simple. The report of the Soviet Commission. Naturally, the German defense representatives argued that other evidence had to be allowed in the case. But Pokrovsky's superior, General Rudenko, the chief Soviet prosecutor, disagreed, saying no other evidence was needed. When he was asked why, his reply was, as the evidence presented by the prosecution will show that the Germans were guilty beyond doubt, nothing else was needed. But the German lawyers were not so easily dissuaded. So they offered up the testimony of Captain Bomert, who was attached to the engineering battalion at Katyn. But again, the Soviets objected. Their argument was that, as Bomert had been there at the supposed time of the killings, he could not give any useful information, that he was directly connected to the case. Then, one of the Soviet prosecutors suggested to the tribunal that instead of questioning witnesses, that their written statements be presented to the court. This way, nothing would get out to the public. Of course, the Germans fought this too, and the compromise was that only three witnesses would be called. It was the first partial victory the German team had. The Soviets first called Dr. Prosorowski, who performed the autopsy when Kathleen Harriman was present. Then Professor Balevsky was questioned about the rumors he heard that the Poles were being taken out in small groups by the Germans in late 1941 and shot. But when the third witness, Dr. Marco Markov, was called, the Germans believed that their adversaries had just made their first major mistake. Dr. Markov had been a part of the International Commission, requested by the Germans, who had signed the resulting report, which accused the Soviet government of the killings. But now, here he was, testifying for the accusers. Markov's coming testimony is not all that surprising once his current situation is explained. Markov's home country, Bulgaria, was liberated and then occupied by Soviet troops. Soon after, he was arrested as an enemy of the people. Why? For taking part in the International Commission investigation at Katyn. He was held for several months, and by the time he was made to answer the charges, he could not express his guilt enough. I am guilty before the Bulgarian nation and its liberator, Russia. From there, he consistently explained that he was forced to go along with the commission and to sign the report. By whom? The Germans, who were currently in control. In fact, according to Markov, the Germans made everyone sign the report, to which the Bulgarians dropped all charges against him. Then Markov was sent to Nuremberg. As soon as Dr. Markov was seated in the witness chair, he spoke out against the International Commission and its findings. But now that he was free from German coercion, 
He definitely believed that the killing occurred at such a time that it had to be the Germans. As those listening to Dr. Markov were still trying to come to terms with his about-face, it was then that Colonel Arens, who the Soviets said was the commanding officer during the time of the killings, offered to testify. Arens' week-long testimony turned the Soviet Commission's report into Swiss cheese. First, he was not in command of the battalion when the Soviets said the massacre took place. Second, he wasn't even in the area. This was proved by German military records. So the Soviets simply switched tactics. For them, this meant, clearly, that his predecessor had organized the killings. But then Colonel Bedneck, the commander there before Ahrens, testified, as did his superior officer, and their stories were identical. At the end of August 1941, a communications center, one of many, attached to the Central Army Group, took up residence in the NKVD house. Their job was to help with communications between five separate armies. All told, there were no more than 20 of them involved. That was when the German police of the area, not attached to their unit, discovered the bodies. The communications group did not help in any way with the bodies afterward. Their responsibilities left them with very little free time. This testimony destroyed the Soviets' reports and accusations. Their reaction? They let it go. When the German Defense Council asked the court, may I have the question put to the prosecution, who is to be made responsible for the Katyn case? The president of the court, Lord Justice Lawrence, said, I do not propose to answer questions of that sort. Meaning the court's job was to ascertain the guilt or innocence of the Germans in the Katyn affair. Nothing more. As the prosecution could not prove guilt, it was a non-issue for the court, which didn't satisfy the polls or the court of world opinion. 